What's up, everyone? Welcome to Doctorly Unhinged. I'm Dr. Shaw. I'm Dr. Maxfield. And today, this is our Unhinged podcast, so we just talk about things that have been coming through the newswire, things that are on our radar, things that people are tagging us in, and we give our unbiased opinion, sometimes our medical opinion, but mostly just our thoughts on these topics. Yeah, it's unbiased, it's unsolicited. We'll kind of get into the weeds with this. So hang with us, enjoy this long thought process, but we're going to have fun <laughs> and keep it light as we go. Exactly. Unsol- no one asked for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one asked for a podcast. We gave it to you anyway. So today we have a ton of stuff to-, to talk about. There are a lot of things that have been coming through as very popular topics, especially on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, that we've been getting tagged in. We want to discuss them today and give our opinions on them. So we're going to just hop right in. We're going to cut out the fluff here. Today, we're going to be talking about Ozempic face first. So first, what is Ozempic face? All right. So Ozempic, if Uh, you're not familiar with. This is a medication that's come into the press. It's not exactly new. This was approved actually a couple of years ago for weight loss, but it's actually traditionally used in the diabetes space. And one of the things that's been noted to do though is help people lose weight. And is it effective? It actually kind of is based off of the studies. Now, what we're actually going to dig into today is kind of the consequence of that. So since people have been using this medication for weight loss, and since it's working, now people are finding out that they're not loving the results and that's where this term has been coined exactly so ozempic is a brand name uh, for a medication that is similar to many other diabetes medications a glucagon like peptide agonist so it basically is similar to this peptide called glucagon that's normally secreted by our body and does many things in our body to regulate insulin production to regulate glucagon production And overall, it actually makes you feel full. It suppresses your appetite and slows the emptying of your stomach so you end up actually eating less food. And and like Dr. Maxfield was saying, a lot of people noticed that they lose a lot of weight on the medication. Now, it was initially approved for diabetes and then became approved for obesity, but really only in people that had other comorbidities. So you had to have diabetes or hypertension, high blood pressure, um, or, you know, high cholesterol or some other type of thing to be approved. So really the way that it's being used today, a lot of celebrities have talked about it. A lot of content creators have talked about it and it's really gone viral because people are using it for weight loss, even though it's not necessarily approved for weight loss, unless you have other issues going on. So they're almost using it, what we call off label, but it does cause weight loss. And when you lose weight rapidly, that's when you start to see effects on the skin and people don't like their appearance. So this happens with anybody. If you lose, if you get gastric bypass, gastric sleeve, use Ozempic, and you lose a ton of weight really, really quickly, your skin doesn't react fast enough to really take into account, I don't know, what am I trying to say? The loss of volume. It can't compensate for the loss of volume. So not only so this, what dr shaw is kind of getting at here is the the skin that's been i don't know if you want to say stretched out but like it really has just over time your skin is used to having more underneath it so it's it's you've got more of it right and so then when you lose the fat underneath it it is kind of stretched out it's lax and that redundancy contributes to the appearance of things like wrinkles and um even i don't know a term that dr it's hard no one uses the word sallowing but it's like a it's an aging term not only to the quality of the skin but also like a sallow face i think that's a thing right a sallow face is where you kind of have hollowed concave cheeks gaunt i think yeah that's exactly right so and, and you see this right in anybody who loses weight rapidly 
even on their body, um, a lot of times they'll need surgery to actually correct all that ha hanging excess skin. And the same thing can occur in the face where that now that skin, it's like a balloon that you've now deflated. It doesn't just shrink down completely. Like if you have a balloon that's full for a long period of time and then you shrink it down, it doesn't go back to its like original elasticity that it always had. It becomes like floppy and and you know has extra folds and extra skin. And so that's essentially what would happen to your face if you used Ozempic and did lose a lot of weight, um, you would end up having like bags underneath your eyes and your skin would sag a little bit and your wrinkles would be more pronounced. And eventually with time, that should get better as your skin adjusts and, and, and changes with time. Um, but in the immediate period, you will look hollowed out. Yes. And the reason I think, even without realizing it, that people are finding this fairly untoward is it mimics some of the natural changes that occur with aging. And so if you're losing weight dramatically, drastically, and quickly, you're going to feel like you've aged tremendously in a short period of time because and Dr. Shah and I have talked about this in the changes of the face that occur with aging. They're, not only do they occur in the skin where the skin becomes dull, like you get excess texture due to loss of oils, it can become redundant, but some of that is actually due to the changes underneath the skin. So when the fat pads atrophy or they shift and migrate down, that also, or, or bone resorption, the same thing, bone resorption, it's loss of volume underneath the skin and that contributes to the appearance of an aging face. And so when you lose weight from something like Ozempic, the changes that you're seeing in the mirror actually are a dramatic and drastic realization of the aging that may have taken place over the next 20 years, but it just mimics it in a short period of time. The question is, what do you do about that if it happens? Like, mm -hmm. what would you recommend? Would you recommend then saying, okay, well, you lost a lot of volume. Let's replace that volume with filler. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of people say is if you develop this ozempic face that you should use filler to, to replace the volume that was lost. Now, so I think based off of what you just said, that's perhaps one of the best options for that. Because again, the whole goal is to replace the volume underneath the skin. In this case, in that setting, to kind of make the skin look more healthy, less redundant. And I would agree that that's probably going to be useful. Now, it's, I actually think it's also going to be more useful than topical things. And this is, I think, where people get into trouble a lot of times is they're looking for a topical product-based fix for something that's really structural and where topicals couldn't address. And I think this is going to fall into that category because I'm not sure anything that you do to really just target the skin like collagen, elastin, or anything like that is going to replace or really address the underlying problem here. And that is excess skin overlying a loss of volume. So again, I think, I think filler seems reasonable. And again, you're compensating though with filler, with filler in particular though. So if you're adding it over the bony arch in the upper face, right, you're going to help address the redundant skin that's inferior below it. Now, one thing it won't directly do is actually perhaps replace the volume of the, the fat itself. And so one place my mind went is the utility of like a fat pad transfer or a fat transfer rather into this area. And now it doesn't work. You, so what a fat transfer is, is like you take fat from a separate site and then you put it into an area where you, you want it right off. I think you see this a lot in the buttocks. That's an area where people are always looking to get a little more volume, take it from somewhere else, put it there. That'd be nice. But with the face, um, could it be helpful? I'm not sure. It, maybe Could that maybe be an alternative 
or would it be more problematic than adding filler to fix this problem? No, I mean, fat transfer to the face has actually become very popular in plastic surgery as, as, as a alternative to hyaluronic acid fillers, right? Because I think people are finding with hyaluronic acid fillers that they're not happy with the way that they look or the fact that they stay around longer than we anticipated is becoming concerning to people. And so because fat transfer doesn't last as long and it's naturally produced by your own body and then placed back in there, people are opting actually more and more for fat transfer in the face. And so I don't necessarily think that you would be worse off um, using that, but I would then say that we're just going to be constantly like inflating and deflating the (laughs) face, which... I don't know if that's like necessarily the outcome that you want, right? Like if you lose weight and you feel healthier and you're happier with the way that you look, but now your skin looks wrinkly and and older, I would recommend like skin tightening procedures probably first, right? So things like CO2 laser really and um, radio frequency microneedling if, you know, it's not that severe or even maybe even like a facelift as an alternative to like then just putting more volume into this like because i because i think that you're once you're playing the volume battle um you're just going to be in that forever versus things that would appear more natural like tightening procedures where you're not changing the anatomy yeah and so i'm picturing all of these different outcomes in my head and as always and with all of our channels we talk about personalization of this because each one of these different procedural options is going to be very individualized and tailored towards you because in my head in my head when we were talking about the redundant skin i was thinking of some i was thinking of something similar to like a hound dog or <laughs> like um not eilers danlos what's the other uh cutis laxa where mm-hmm. the, the skin is very redundant to an extreme and for me I think the skin tightening procedure is something like a facelift or where you just do a skin reduction where you like take a portion of skin hide the scar and actually move the skin up um would be valuable there more than more than perhaps filler certainly more than co2 and microneedling so I, let, me, let me organize it this way if a person has something like this and if the skin is only slightly saggy it just kind of looks a little bit loose redundant but it's not actually hanging or draping it, it's somewhat subtle i think co2 laser or microneedling would be a great first start if a person's finding that it's just very redundant it's like a very obvious obvious um loosening of their skin and almost like you have jowls i think then you should look at perhaps skin tightening procedures like a facelift and that's where you actually grab the smass underlying the skin and tighten the whole thing uh i think that might be more useful and then for filler i think you know we'd look at the way this can be done i think that would be more like a person per use situation when there's a i think it would actually complement some of the i think it would just complement all of it because it brings something unique filler would complement and replace some of the natural aging changes like bony loss resorption in the upper face and that would probably complement a fat plaid replacement or complement the facelift where you'd be targeting perhaps a different area so i guess I, what i'm saying is it's gonna be personalized and a person might end up betting benefiting from just all of it <laughs> but yeah it well, no, i think actually there's a strong argument here for combination therapy like yeah you know i didn't know what direction i was going to lean on this but you know after you saying this and me thinking about this a small amount of filler, right, to replace some of the volume lost, but not to the point where you look exaggerated or bloated, complemented with skin tightening procedures, whether that be a facelift or it be really aggressive CO2 resurfacing, 
being a way to comp like to come together to give you a more natural look that you're not constantly chasing like throwing volume at something mm-hmm. that you're never going to catch up with and so i think that that would probably be the way that you're going to have the most sustainable results with this because like what are you going to just not take ozempic if you have diabetes or you have obesity with these other comorbidities it's it's been shown to have like overall health benefits right so it's like if you're using it inappropriately right if you're somebody who's using it and you it's not necessarily indicated it's used off label then of course like you don't like the way that you look then stop using it but if you have these other health issues that could shorten your lifespan then you know using ozempic or wagovi or one of these similar medications like you need them and so how do you address the resultant skin problem that develops as a result of using this and i think then it's that multifactorial approach of using multiple modalities to tighten the skin and make you overall look healthy over a long period of time yeah and that's kind of a big part of this too is we've really focused on the purely cosmetic so like we were just kind of assuming that it was a cosmetic problem you're trying to address it first but there's a whole subset of people who were actually taking this functionally for a bigger picture health picture and now this is just something that they're left with now a big problem with all of the things we recommended is the cost of doing a comprehensive what what, what do we say facelift fat pad transfer filler on a regular basis this is insane the right. cost of this is like prohibitive no one no one is going to be able to keep up with this consistently and so you know aging pretty much like everything in life is a losing battle and not like hair aging like hair loss you know it's a losing battle but we're going to go down swinging and this is I don't know. You could actually transition slowly. You you could actually, if you, if you were going to jump into the space of, okay, I'm going to address this with all of the things that Dr. Sean, Dr. Maxfield mentioned, you could do a little bit here and there, do it all at once, and then do less and less progressively over the course of a couple of years. And it would make the aging process seem more gradual. That's another option so that you're not spent spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for the rest of your life. That would soften the blow perhaps. And I would also argue after that initial weight loss that even with time alone, the skin would tighten up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because your body would adapt to having less, less, you know, like being less full. And so, you know, when you, when your skin remodels and your collagen is being produced and, you know, especially if you're younger and your skin is more adaptive um, to changes, it would probably tighten up with time, even with minimal intervention right so then even without any intervention it would probably time would correct like half of it in my mind and then you know the other half you know you could use treatments to try to resolve it so you're more optimistic than me i think a lot less than half i i think of a lot of the people we see post uh, bariatric surgery and the redundant skin we see that that fairly frequently and um, it can be pretty dramatic the skin may not return to what you'd feel like or what a person might expect for a normal baseline. Um, But this is certainly going to probably be less dramatic of a, it is less dramatic than the weight loss associated with the gastric bypass or something like that. And the skin is less redundant too. Right. Right. We don't, we, I think we're seeing 14% weight loss or or something like that. So it's not like 50% weight loss where you'd expect (sighs) as dramatic changes, but still, even so I think, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't like in my mind, if you need Ozempic for health reasons, this side effect in my mind shouldn't deter you um, 
to, to, for you getting to a healthy weight that, um, that doesn't have these other comorbidities, which could shorten your lifespan. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let it scare me away. Cause a lot of these videos that I've seen are like, don't take Ozempic because of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you need it for other reasons, you know, I think you have to weigh the risk benefit, right. You, you may have this gaunt appearance, however, you know, you need it for your health. And so, you know, I just, I think sometimes people, you know, we see this a lot in dermatologic medications as well. Like don't try these medications because they have X, Y, Z side effect. It's like, well, no, like you need this. Like we're not, you're not taking this for fun necessarily. Right. So I think, I think that that also needs to be considered. Okay. So now let's, uh, let's diver diverge. Let's, let's move on to the, what if it was just for fun? What if, what if at some point in your life you decide that the gaunt look is the look for you and you decide to go into something like a buckle fat pad removal, right? right now, because this is that. purely cosmetic. There's right. not a, in a buck, so we just giving people an idea with this buccal, buccal or buckle. I've heard it both ways. Buckle fat pads are the fat pads within the cheeks, underlying the cheeks, and they are underneath the sagomatic arch and it gives your face I don't know, a nice rotund cherubim like appearance. <laughs> so but. I have pronounced a buckle fat, I would argue. So it's basically the fat in this area that gives you, yeah, like like Dr. Maxfield mentioned, a more rounded appearance to your face. Now, some people would argue that that is a more youthful appearance to the face because it's the part of the face that, you know, you're, you, the people, you know, pinch when you're a baby, right? It's, you know, the, kind of that baby <laughs> fat appearance a lot of times is that, that buckle fat. And um, the opposite of that would be like, you know, more of that, sort of teardrop hourglass shape of the face that sort of inverted triangle where you know your chin is sort of the peak of that inverted triangle and um, your zygoma is the base of that triangle um, essentially like having hollowed out area within this area some people find that to be desirable it's the zoolander look essentially um, the 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 blue <laughs> blue what is it blue magnum I don't know. You were going Zoolander. I was going with the bad guy in Emperor's New Groove. I don't remember her name. I'm looking at Blue, Blue Steel. Steel. Blue That's Steel. It. Yeah, exactly. So Blue Steel appearance of the <laughs> of the buckle fat so so that's the look or or handsome squidward or something like this where you get these you know really 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 strong jaw really strong um upper cheekbones and then a hollowing in between uh and you see this in a lot of celebrities as well like uh um who's the one with the lips angelina jolie that's a good example right so lips. angelina jolie um and so so basically people are now it's become popular and it, it was becoming popular maybe three or four years ago as well. And is ramped up again because a lot of celebrities again are talking about this is, is actually removing that, that buckle fat through surgery, removing the fat pad, um, to have that appearance of that shape. Right. And so with that, they get the same, you can get a similar, a similar outcome, I guess, to the previous conversation where you just have a more sallow, I still think that's a word, gaunt face. Now, the, the difference here, though, I think, again, is you don't have that functional backside of it. And so it's like a tattoo, in my opinion. It's like, you better be committed to this. This better be the look you want um, because it's only going to get exaggerated the older you get. And, I, I, you know, looking at the pictures, you know, and just speaking purely about 
aging of the face and the changes that are associated with the aging face. I, I do think that the, the buckle fat pad removal, it does, I think it does age people like it, the way it looks. I think it really does actually add, I don't know, I'd say like five to 10 years to their pictures, just like a before and after depending on mm-hmm. the lighting. So it's something you really want to be able to commit to. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it permanent in many ways, right? So to talk a little bit about the procedure, it's done by usually a plastic surgery, plastic surgeon or an ENT facial plastic surgeon, and usually done from inside the mouth. So basically they go inside the mouth, they remove this buckle fat pad, which is within a certain compartment. Uh, usually they don't remove the entire fat pad. Um, I think they just use remove half of it or two thirds of it or three quarters of it. They, they don't remove the entire thing usually. And um, then they kind of stitch you back up. And so getting this procedure done in general, of course, has risks, right? So anytime you cut a hole in the skin, there's risk of bleeding, there's risk of infection, there's risk of scarring. Um, there's other also important structures in this area, right? You have the parotid duct, um, which runs from in front of the ear down, um, to the corner of the mouth and you could injure that parotid duct. You could also injure nerves in the face that, you know, give you the facial expression, smiling, uh, sipping a straw, you know, things like this. And so there are no, there are important anatomical structures in this area. And those are at risk when you get this procedure done, like any cosmetic procedure, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits. Now, if you go to somebody who is knowledgeable, you know, they're going to definitely take all this into consideration, but these are things that you'll have to discuss with them as well. Now, whether or not you want this appearance, yes, like it is an immediate result. Yes, it gives you that like quote unquote, you know, model look or that Angelina Jolie look immediately after the surgery. So, you know, I think if you want that look, it like any other cosmetic procedure, it's something that, you know, you have to decide whether or not you want that appearance long term, right? Because I think that that is the pitfall of any 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 procedure where you change the way of your appearance is. So I don't think this makes it any different than any other cosmetic procedure other than like, I agree, like, like it does, it can make you look older. Like, cause I mentioned, like, it's like the baby fat, you're removing that sort of baby fat appearance. And so it can make you look more, I don't know if I want to say older, but like maybe more mature. Is that? An, I mean, um, nah <laughs> like you don't think well because like i like i like it's sort of they're they're correlated with like like age and, and maturity are sort of correlated with each other but they're almost like more mature features i don't like does that yeah make any sense i don't know yes and no i mean it, i think it's so hand in hand it's just like is it a duck or is it a duck but it's uh, kind of like facial hair it's like facial hair exactly okay. like facial like facial hair tends to make you look more mature but doesn't necessarily make you look older doesn't okay okay i don't know this is all like very subjective right so you all you all have your own opinions about this but i sent into the facial hair thing i I mean i do agree with that i i don't know if anybody's noticed i wear facial hair more often now and it's not necessarily because i like the way it looks better but i do actually surgeries fairly frequently uh, because i'm also a most surgeon and i feel like it does instill more of a sense of confidence within the patients and i think it's because of what dr shaw just said they either think i'm older which um i like to think that i'm naturally youthful and glowy and so i have to offset that with this beard this facial hair so i look old or wise depending on who you ask (laughs) 
I don't know. I I just I think it's a marker of maturity. I don't know. So I mean, well, whatever. The appearance of this face, whether whether you like that appearance or not, I think that's always subjective, right? Like right. we're always going to have our personal opinions. Do we like really big duck lips? Do you like the appearance of the BBL? Do you like the appearance of like all these other things that people are doing? Like that's very subjective, and some people do want to pursue this look. So I think the risks that I mentioned are inherently there. And then sort of the long-term, like you mentioned, the long-term consequences, I don't know necessarily that those are well elucidated because we don't, I don't know that this is being, having been done for long enough, or at least at, at least not at the capacity that we're seeing it happening today, that we know like what all these people are going to look like 10 years from now. And Mm -hmm. the natural changes of the face, right, is that you get and we've mentioned this several times even today, is is the redistribution of fat in the face happens naturally, right? So you get a natural movement of shrinkage of certain fat pads, other fat pads getting larger, and then everything kind of moving in the direction of gravity as the compartments don't stay as well intact. And so what you would probably expect is that that, that buckle fat pad shrinks with time, which is why you see older people and you can see more of their like like i'm talking about very old people like 100 plus start to develop that more like skeleton appearance um because they lose a lot of that that buckle fat as well and so <laughs> you're looking at me like i'm gonna get in trouble from <laughs> i was the wondering where you're gonna go with no, the that's 100 why. the 100 you, plus population <laughs> you if you're 100 out. and you're you're watching this congrats yeah, you start out I with feel. like the very old population and then you qualify it with an age. You just, I was wondering if Dr. Show was going to be like the very old population, the 30 over. No, that you said that <laughs> once. Like you said once in a video on retinol, if you're 30 plus and you're not using retinol, then like, you know. <laughs> what do you do like, with I was your like, life? whoa. <laughs> but no, no, no. So I mean like 100 plus, you start to have a skeletal appearance and you know, part of that is due to loss of, of fat in, in, in some of the fat pads. And so would that then be exaggerated at an older age where you start to have that more gaunt appearance? I, I don't know whether or not time has, well, time will tell essentially, especially if you're getting this done at a very young age. That being said, we probably will have methods to reverse it by then once Elon Musk and others figure out how to reverse <laughs> reverse time actually i saw interestingly about that quickly because there's a lot of like researchers very popular podcasting actually in the world of like longevity i don't know if you've seen any of these like health related longevity podcasts where the entire focus is trying to make you live forever Mm -hmm. um and they asked elon musk at some point like why don't you focus on trying to like make people live forever and he was like i don't think people should live forever because new ideas this is a Max Planck quote, who's like a physicist, actually. But essentially, he said, things don't change. People's opinions don't change. They just die. And younger generations grow up mm. with new ideas. And so his whole thing was like, people shouldn't live forever because like no new ideas or new thoughts would come about. It's a very interesting reason to put forward why people shouldn't live forever out of everything you could pick. This is just because like the progression of ideas wouldn't move forward. I mean, that's ideas and in, in beliefs, though. right? Like in, in many ways, right? I don't yeah. you know. I don't know. No, I mean, I don't, you know, he's probably right. It seems like most people kind of get this like fixed sense of identity. I mean, it's obviously people definitely get a more fixed sense of identity, but also more rigid belief system the older they get. So I don't disagree with that, that idea. But maybe older ways are better ways. It could be too. 
um maybe the next generation will figure that out for us is like maybe the older way was the better way who knows it's uh it's interesting i think nah i don't know yeah i think i think it's interesting i don't listen to many of those podcasts yet i'm I'm on the podcast kick um uh, maybe you can recommend some to me and i'll listen to on the way the one thing with i think aging that's interesting too is okay so so one of the most consistent ways for people to age less live longer one of the ones that's been shown to be consistent is like calorie restriction eating less and I, I don't remember because it's been a long time since I've, it was like undergrad when I saw this study or the professor talked about it. But I think it actually prolongs the telomeres or helps prevent telomere shortening is by calorie restriction and eating, uh, decreasing your diet, like more so than exercising, right? I think exercising mm-hmm. is much that I've I love heard it. this several times. Yeah. See, you too. It seems like common knowledge at this point. Um, so that's one way to live longer. And that's kind of a do less, get more kind of thing. Um, as opposed to perhaps inventing something new if we actually just calorie restricted perhaps we'd all just live longer well i think that you know that's one of the things that is consistently touted within this realm is that in in one of the frustrating things i think about diet nutrition and its relation to health and longevity is that there are so many like so much more than skin there are so many more conflicting studies that come out day to day that say this is the best diet. No, you should be a carnivore. No, you should be vegan. No, you should be, you know, only eating like, you know, the toes of horses or something like that, right? There's always some like, there's always some like in fad diet based on like a small study that everyone gets like really attached to. And the, probably the, probably, probably what you mentioned, intermittent fasting, this idea of not eating for, you know, like let's say 16 hours and only eating during a short period of time during the day. Um, that diet seems to have one of the longest staying powers of any diet I've seen that have come out. And I think that there's a lot of good evidence to support the benefits of intermittent fasting from, you know, increased longevity, um, it being like overall just good for your health in general. And then now there's this new study that comes out that says it doesn't actually help with weight loss. Yeah. Now, so, okay. I have just putting this forward. I've actually been very consistent. This is one of my, my actually habits I've stuck with intermittent. I've been doing intermittent fasting now where I don't eat after like 7 PM and I don't eat again till 11 AM out of the last, let's say year and a half. I've probably done this for 15 months and it may be even longer and better than that. And anecdotally, I have not lost a pound, Like, but the reason I stick with it is it sustainable. It's like, I, it's, it's it's sustainable and i know that on some level not eating like a 17 year old for every meal at every waking moment of the day has got to be good for me like at some level this has got to be working but some people argue that um intermittent like that you know like constantly eating or eating small amounts every couple hours would then speed up your metabolism because your body would think that um it needs to constantly be in a high metabolic state yeah. Now, some would also argue that if you're always providing like free glucose and or I guess simple carbohydrates and then eventually free glucose to be converted into ADP or ATP rather for your cells, like to energy, you would never your body would never need to use your stores to back convert stored glucose or adipose into free energy and say, so, I mean, so you'd never lose weight. Yeah, you'd never be catabolic. You'd always be anabolic. You'd always you would always be fed and growing and 
there would never be the opportunity for your body to get into a catabolic state where it's breaking down your stores and converting that into free energy to be used. And that's one of the reasons I think intermittent fasting makes sense on a very simple level is the whole a goal one would probably be calorie restriction just by eating less and then the second goal would probably be by trying to get your body into a fasting state where you're forcing it to use some of the stores now one of my questions with it and i think a lot of stuff there i think there are actually a lot of studies that show that it doesn't create meaningful weight loss long term i don't think this is the first one actually i know it's not because when i first looked into this i found many studies that said it doesn't work and it's like ah, it's all Mm -hmm. right i'll try it anyway now I don't know if you remember in medical school, and I think it's something like I think it's something like five days of ketosis. Five days of ketosis. It gets to the point where your is it your brain can start using a different energy store, or you start really fully going into ketosis at that point. And so I don't know if intermittent fasting over uh, what a sixteen hour period is actually really long enough to be meaningful in any way to use your stores. That's my main thought on it and i'm not sure if that's true or not but yeah i mean i think that any weight loss study there are so many conflicting variables did the people in the study actually do that or like all diets do people break the diets like what did they eat while they were intermittent fasting like what other genetic issues do they have do they have diabetes or do they have thyroid disorder like you know there's so many like i don't know how well controlled these studies are anyway that Mm -hmm. i feel strongly about like whether or not weight loss and and even if you're not losing weight is is that like you're not healthier because like you could maintain the same weight and be much healthier because you have improved insulin sensitivity or you have lower blood glucose levels during that time period, a lower A1C over those, um, you know, 90 days, you have uh, lower inflammation, signs of inflammation in the body, reduced oxidative stress, like, you know, all these types of things that have been shown to be beneficial in intermittent fasting, like just because you didn't lose weight, does that mean that you didn't benefit from those things, but that's why I don't get too hyped on diet, right? Like it's just, I've, to me, like it's one of the most poorly um, studied things in all parts of medicine because it's just so hard to control for the different variables. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's disappointing for us as professionals. And I know it's disappointing for people as, um, I don't know, viewers or just everyone in the public in general, because it's one of the most commonly requested topics. Like, hey, why don't you talk more about diet? Yeah, I have a lot of beliefs about diet. I have like some very strong opinions, some not very strong opinions. But the fact of the matter is, I don't feel confident backing it up with data. (laughs) So no, that's I mean, really, I just like you know, we've always said like, there's this sort of humility in what we do that every time we record something, we have to be open to the possibility of currently being wrong about what we believe and being wrong about what we believe in the future as more studies go out. Right. And there's certain comfort level with what we talk about, because a lot of the things that we talk about in in dermatology have been well described and have years of data backing them versus the data, the, the, the health, the, the weight loss, and nutrition space tend to come out with you can find a conflicting study from like almost anything right like mm-hmm. uh, and and so the problem is that you open yourself up as somebody who's a medical professional giving advice on these things to being wrong more often in the future <laughs> and i don't know my comfort level for that right like i like that my our content is usually evergreen um for the most part and you know, if we ever have to go back and debunk ourselves, we do it from time to time. But I don't, I, I would hate like every every week a new study coming out and saying like, hey, I'm wrong actually. <laughs> so that that to me, like, it's just, it's sort of like 
I mean, we can touch on it. I think we'll expand on it within our doctorally universe with time. But, you know, if we ever do expand on it, I I just hope the public gives us some grace because there's going to be many times that we're going to be disproven if we we try to venture into that realm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that whole sentiment. But it is intriguing. It is intriguing. I think, and I think one of the reasons that uh, people want they want it to work i think it's because it's something that's pretty easily controlled right like we all have to eat we're all going to spend money on food anyway and boy wouldn't it be nice if there was something we could buy more of especially more of here in america oh boy wouldn't it be nice if i took more of this (laughs) right right. and um and i would have some amazing meaningful change impactfully especially within our health overall and it very, very rarely seems to pan out. And I think you can kind of assess this by looking back at things because a lot of things will catch fads. They'll catch a lot of attention and like all the hype. A study will come out. Another study will come out. And then in one or two years, I'll say like one or two years, it's just blowing up. And then it kind of quietly goes away and it's gone. And so if something has staying power, I'd say if something has staying power for five years plus, that's mm-hmm. pretty meaningful. Um, especially in the uh, the realm of health, health, yeah, I'd say health in particular, health and diet in particular. If something seems to be consistent for five years plus, there's probably something to it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I'm not like quick to jump on trends unless there's like overwhelming evidence that you know that this is way better somehow. But and, and this is like not out of you know the the lack of advice in this category is not out of like not not like our desire to provide you with valuable information it's just that there really is not a lot of great information out there like even on how diet affects the skin so it's just like we don't want to give you bad advice um, because then that depletes trust right i think we saw this um you know throughout the past couple years is you know a lot of medical uh, medical professionals making recommendations on things when the full story had not developed yet and the risk of that is that you then erode the trust right and so i think part of you know part of what we do is try to get all the information first before you know then then talking about it but and of course like facing the public with some degree of humility that you know we we are definitely open to being wrong and debunked in the future so um that's something let's talk about something that's like you know strongly in our wheelhouse how about that because uh, this is all in our wheelhouse you know but what's let's talk about something strongly in our wheelhouse let's talk about this article coming out of cnn health and it's titled a common nail salon tool may cause dna damage and mutations in human cells research finds and the research is based on this study in nature where the title of the article is dna damage and semiotic mutations in mammalian cells after irradiation with nail polish dryers. And so the common concern I'm seeing now on social media from a lot of people is, is UV, using a UV lamp after getting a gel manicure going to cause skin cancer on the hands? That's the concern that people have right now. So what are our thoughts on that? So, okay, it starts with a familiar premise, and that is that UV... Yeah, UV light, UV radiation, which is in the spectrum of the light provided by the sun, causes DNA damage. We know this is true. So that's not that's not up for controversy here. That's like not up for debate. We know that UV damage damages DNA. It causes these um, cyclobutane dimers or pyrimidine dimers that are reflective of damage and that overall does lead to an increased risk of skin cancers. And the, 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 now that the, the focal premise here is that the idea of using these devices that 
cure these gel nails, hardens them fairly quickly, will eventually lead to skin cancer as well. And you know what's interesting too, this also is not a novel topic. This is definitely something I think we've talked about in passing over the last few years, and this is not the only study, this is just a study. And it's an in vitro study, meaning it wasn't necessarily done on live humans reproducing what would be reflective of real life results. Um, it's more of a lab-based study here. Yeah. So I think one of the pitfalls of any news that comes out is you got to go back and look at the original article. And this is something that's been debated for a long time. Um, if you go back to many studies done in dermatology on the risk of UV lamps on skin cancer on the hands, they found that there was no there was no identifiable increased risk of skin cancer on the hands in previous studies. And the conclusion was basically inconclusive. It was like, hey, you know, there's no evidence that, you know, in this group of people that have used uh, UV light to cure their gel manicures in the past have had increased risk of skin cancer on the hands in the future. Then there were other studies that said, oh, well, maybe it is tied to melanoma on the hands because, you know, retrospective studies had shown that looking back to people that had melanoma on the hands, how often they got, you know, these gel manicures was related to them. And so the, the studies have been mixed back and forth in the first place. And then this study comes out and it actually looks at what we call in vitro. So they look at like human cells, but not like while they're attached to the body. And they look at, you know, mouse cells as well. They irradiate them under this UV lamp for 20 minutes, and then they look for damage to the cells. And what they found was they found, you know, DNA damage, they found oxidative damage as well. And we know, <laughs> we have known forever that UV light over periods of time, and I think specifically UV lamps that cure gel manicures are in the UVA range. We've known for a long period of time that UVA does cause damage to your skin cells. And we've, we also know that it can increase your risk of squamous cell skin cancer. So this has been like, well elucidated like this is not a mystery and so taking a uv lamp and then irradiating i'm not surprised that you're seeing skin death like skin cell death uv da like, uh, damage to your skin cells and um changes in your dna like this is not a surprise to me now what does this look like in real life because we see this all the time every single time you walk out of your house and you're exposed to sunlight you have these same changes that occur in the skin and and in your body naturally has repair mechanisms that fix these problems so that we never like we get what we call sunburn cells when we're exposed to the sun and we get dna damage and our body is programmed to fix these problems before they turn into anything problematic so yes do i think that there are it is showing markers of dna damage that could then lead to skin cancer in the future yes how that looks in a person's life, I don't think it's been proven at this point. Well, I know it hasn't been proven at this point that like be using these will cause cancer to you in the future or increases your risk of cancer by any substantial degree. Yeah. So what doc, exactly. So Dr. Shaw is kind of bringing home the point that just because a study showed that it could doesn't mean it will. And we see this all the time. There's so many different debates about this. Like, let's say we've talked about this, vitamin C and niacinamide. If you mix them together, could it make a deleterious effect? Could it make niacinamide more likely to cause flushing? Or we see it with benzoyl peroxide. Or can it cause 
reactive oxidative species or self-tanner, same thing, dihydroxyacetone, can it cause oxidative damage? Yeah, in theory it can. A lot of things do a lot of untoward things that no one wants, but it's not always meaningful. And so that's the question here is, are these 20 is this 20 minute exposure representative of perhaps the what one minute, one, two minute exposures of the gel curing that occurs in person? Is it the same thing? We don't really know. Um, even if you're, even if you're erring on the side of caution, even if you're erring on the side of caution, it seems like it may not be representative of, or reflective of what's actually happening in real life. Plus there's some other caveats here too. I mean, is UV the standard still for curing gel nails? I know there are other options available now too, like LED is being used, which LED is different than UV. So like both of them involve the light spectrum but LED uses a more focused, narrow wavelength, and you can use that in different spectrums of visible light, which is completely different. It's a completely different energy, just as different as one laser is from another, UVA and UVB are that different than visible light. They act completely different on the cellular level. And so if you're using something like that, then I think your risk virtually falls to nil. Like you probably have no risk of skin cancer developing if you just cut out the UV portion, which is like an obvious thing to say, I guess. But it just yeah. shows that like in real life, this may not be as big of a problem as you would think. And then there are of course other alternatives for nails. I mean, if you just want to forego gel nails altogether, you can get, I mean, traditional nail polish has its own problem of being allergenic with the acrylates, but then you have nail stickers too. And I'd asked uh, my wife about that and some people at the office and they loved, they love nail stickers. They, they were hyped about the nail stickers. They, they look really good from what I hear. Yeah, so so I'm not going to get into like <laughs> the new nail fashions right now. I'm not up to date on them, so I'm not, I'm not going to chime in. You know, who, you know who might be? So James Welsh actually created a new nail channel on YouTube. I'm definitely going to have to watch that also because I'm also not up to date on the new nail fashions, which is why I ask people, like, what's your right. experience with gel nails, gel nails versus, like, nail stickers? How do you feel about them? How has it worked for you? And, you know, the response was pretty positive. Right. Well... All right, so kind of jumping into this gel nail thing, I, I agree. So I think that by and large, because of fear surrounding the UV lamps at these nail salons, they've shifted mostly to LED lamps in the first place, which LED overwhelmingly appears to be safe. And then with UV radiation, I think that you will undergo some degree of damage during that two to five minutes that you have your hand under the bulbs. If you're concerned about that risk, then I would recommend looking for a place like when you call in for your nail appointment hey do you use uv lamps or do you use um or do you use led lamps and they know because people probably ask them all the time and then just see what they have and if if you're concerned about it i would avoid it but i if you're somebody in the past that's used these uv lamps and now this study comes out and it says well it you know it causes markers that could increase your risk of cancer yes that's true but you can't like go back and change the past i mean you get uv radiation exposure every day that you walk outside um just in the future continue to wear sunscreen on your hands you could wear sunscreen on your hands even in these uv lamps as well and then just expose your nails to this this curing uv or you could even use gloves where you cover everything except for the tips of your fingertips if you really 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 wanted to and had to use these uv lamps but otherwise i would just call before and ask them and and that would be my recommendation to my own family i just you know why expose yourself if you don't have to? 
Right. It sounds like we have better alternatives now, so just pick the safer and probably equally efficacious option in the LED gearing devices. Also, I guess one one notable thing that would be a reminder for people, if you're someone, whether or not you've used a UV lamp altogether, if you have a new dark pigmented band or a new growth underneath your nail, I mean, go see a dermatologist, right? They'll help you kind of identify that. But uh, that's that's not necessarily exclusively in the UV gel nail cured population. That's a universal recommendation. Correct. Right. Any suspicious lesion, definitely see your dermatologist. All right. So I think that covers like pretty four pretty heavy topics right now on on social media and beyond uh let us know um if there's a comment section here wherever you're listening uh let us know what you'd like us to talk about next uh, make sure that you subscribe on anywhere that you get your podcasts whether it be spotify apple or even subscribe to us on youtube uh, we'll be coming out with content like this every week so stay tuned and we'll see you all in the next episode yeah we'll see you next time we appreciate you always 